Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Lincoln Cannon, and he is a technologist, a biohacker par excellence. In fact, he takes 50 supplements daily, I hear. He is a very deep thinker, and uh, along with being the CEO of Thrivis, and interestingly, he is also the founder of Transfigurism and ChristianTranshumanism.org and Christian Transhumanism. That may be something that sounds initially just a bit oxymoronic and perhaps contradictory. And we're going to get into that. And I suspect that perhaps Lincoln is also on the same nootropic stack that I am on right now. Pleasure to be with you, Jonathan. Thanks for the invitation. And I, uh, I'm going to guess that I am on the same nootropic stack. Yes, on the Alpha, alpha Neuroprotector and the Clarity Daily. Yes, I am indeed. Okay, great, great. Well, we'll 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 get we'll get into we'll get into that. I do suggest that people check out Thrivus, which why which I will link below this podcast and check out my review of two of the stacks that they have out. But I wanted to get into some juicy philosophical uh, intellectual territory here. So if uh, the listeners have not yet taken their nootropics, then they they should now so that they can fully appreciate. <laughs> Fully appreciate everything here. So uh, me personally, I'm a reluctant transhumanist and a pragmatic Christian. And I'll explain what I mean by that in this podcast. But what I thought was interesting about you, Lincoln, is that you're kind of, okay, with uh, Christian transhumanism, as I understand it, or Mormon transhumanism, because you are Mormon. That's right. it seems to me that you're kind of fighting a ideological battle on two fronts. Because when I think about the attitudes of transhumanists, transhumanists are usually thinking religion is stupid, dogmatic, and old-fashioned. Religion is the thing that has been holding humanity back from this secular technological utopia that we envision. And then the Christians on the other side are thinking that transhumanists are, they're trying to replace humanity with a technological abomination and that transhumanists are in this uh, paradigm of this post-modern, not very grounded concept of ethics and morals that doesn't seem like it would make for a very good foundation of a society. How... how do you marry these two things, which seem to be pretty far apart? Yeah, well, you you nailed the um, the common perceptions that both sides bring to it. I get I get critics from from both ends, and the the way that you bring those things together is that you carefully define what each is. And then you help people understand where the overlap is. So, for example, uh, as a Mormon, 
I understand Christianity as an immersive discipleship of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by immersive is that it's not so much a religion about Jesus. It's more so an attempt to live the religion of Jesus, which is a religion of transformation. It's a religion of trusting in and changing toward and fully immersing your uh, body and your mind in the role of Christ. And what that means in Christian theology is not some kind of supernatural thing. It, a Christ is a savior or a, a person anointed to bring about positive change and protection of a community. And so if we follow Jesus in that role, then we're aiming to help raise each other, to console and to heal and to make the world a better place. So as a Christian in this sense, my attempt is to live a transformative life, both for myself, for my family, my friends, and for the world. And that transformation should be something more than just superficial. As Jesus exemplifies in the Bible, of course, that transformation goes all the way to resurrection, to immortality. And that's the kind of aspiration that I have for myself and for my family and friends and for anybody else in the world who wants it, that we can ultimately change the nature of our, of our communities, the nature of our bodies, the nature of our world, such that it's conducive to living longer, healthier, more compassionate, more intelligent lives. So with that kind of understanding of Christianity, on the one hand, then we can switch over to transhumanism. And I'd say that a good definition of transhumanism is the advocacy for ethical use of technology to extend human abilities. So commonly those under the understanding of that extension of human abilities is a, is a little bit superficial people focus on perhaps just strength and intelligence but i would argue that the most important ways that we can advance and change and improve human abilities is to also increase in the many important virtues that we have traditionally advocated, notably compassion. Can we use technology to enhance our ability to have compassion, to have empathy, to relate better than ever before? And I think that the answer is a resounding yes, we can use technology to facilitate that. Of course, technology is just power. On the other hand, you know, power can be used for both good and evil, for both the beautiful and the ugly. And so it's up to us to make ethical decisions about how to apply technology to make ourselves and our world a better place. So given the, this uh, understanding of transhumanism Christianity, you can see that there is a great deal of potential for overlap. So Christians, the especially the, the really action-oriented Christians, are on the project of evangelization constantly, and especially Mormons. You guys are really really serious about uh, evangelizing. Uh, in fact, it was uh, just the other day, I was uh, walking down the street here in Bulgaria with my wife, and we had some uh, American girls approach us who were speaking Bulgarian uh, fluently, and they were, they were out there on their mission. They were out there doing the, the evangelization thing. Uh, so I'm curious, how is it going with um, evangelizing with bringing these two groups a little bit closer together because it it just seems to me like a, a pretty hard task it can be a hard thing to do uh, and and yes evangelism is very important to Mormons um, and so we work hard at it just to give you a, a sense of how important it is to me personally both my wife and I were uh, missionaries 
Mormon missionaries about 20 years ago. My oldest son uh, served as a missionary in Quebec in Canada. And my second son is getting ready to leave on a mission to the Ivory Coast just a week from now. Wow. where he'll be for a couple of years. So, you know, this sort of missionary work is very important uh, to me personally to the, and to my family. And the reason we, we do this is because we care a great deal about the ideas and we want to share them with other people. Now, there's multiple approaches to such evangelism. There are religious persons, including Mormons, of course, who think that they're doing the evangelism because everybody who doesn't accept their ideas is going to, like, burn in hell or something like that to use the extreme, in my opinion, crazy version of the motivation for evangelism. My motivation is very different. I, I, Well, very different. I guess it depends on your perspective how different this is. I'll tell you what it is, and you can decide how different it is. Um, my motivation is that Christianity and the Mormon version of it in particular has brought a great deal of benefit to my life. I, I am, I believe, a much better person as a consequence of attempting to live in accordance with Christian principles. And the the value of that in my life has been sufficient to persuade me that I think that I should go out and try to share that with other people. Now, I'm under no illusion that the way I live and the benefits that I've received will be the same for everyone. It may be better for some people not to be Christian, and I'm completely comfortable with that reality. But on the other hand, I also think that there's enough value and enough probability of sharing value that it's worth my time to share it with other people. So part of that is that I also try to share my approach to Christianity, which is a Christian transhumanist approach. And it, um, we've, you know, it's been uh, relatively successful. We founded the Mormon Transhumanist Association in 2006. It quickly became the largest group of religious transhumanists in the world, and that's not for lack of effort. You have seven, 700 members? I currently have just about 800 today, and um, you know, so the world's not going to become Mormon transhumanist anytime soon, but um, it is an important network for its members. It, it provides a lot of support and motivation, inspiration for those of us who value these things and uh, drives a sense of purpose and uh, meaning and, and motivates us to, to, I think, contribute to the world in ways that even people who aren't Mormon transhumanists can and should appreciate because we're doing things that you don't have to be a Mormon transhumanist to value, such as trying to make people smarter and kinder and to leverage science and technology to do good things and to question um, the applications that would be about egotistical approaches to human life. So, um, yeah, it's, we, we, we've got uh, about 800 members there. A few years back, I helped found the Christian Transhumanist Association as well. Of course, there's many more Christians, um, non-Mormon Christians in the world than Mormons. So that organization is growing faster than the Mormon Transhumanist Association, but hasn't yet quite caught up in numbers. I imagine it will within the next few years. And... You know, we spend a lot of time in online advocacy. We have conferences on a regular basis, um, in-person conferences. The Mormon Transhumanist Association usually meets in the Salt Lake City area. The Christian Transhumanist Association usually meets in the Nashville, uh, Tennessee area. And uh, we're, we're writing papers, publishing articles in peer-reviewed journals and blogs. And the aim for both of these advocacy efforts is to help people see how science and technology are compatible with 
uh, certain interpretations of religion, and we think that these are constructive, life-affirming, world-affirming, relationship-affirming interpretations of religion and are worth sharing. So talking about religion, I, I want to make uh, the case for religion just a bit to people who might be listening that are that are atheists or that are kind of agnostic sort of people. And so I, I've been an atheist myself for several years. I went through kind of a journey where when I was very young, I was very zealous evangelical. And then I read some books about atheism and found a lot of their arguments very compelling. And so I became an atheist. But then I read some more books uh, about the value of about the value of faith. And I yeah, now I now I feel like I'm more of a pragmatic Christian. And the the real value in religion, as, as I see it, is that as as atheists, as uh, secular kind of people are so fond of reminding us, we are animals and we are driven by all of these basal animalistic impulses, these impulses to uh, have sex with whatever looks good to us, to eat whatever looks good to us, to, you know, consume whatever substances make us feel just a little bit better for that fleeting moment. We have this impulse to, you know, take uh, whatever it is that we want. And in, you know, in this state of nature, uh, human beings, if, you're, if your wife, if, if your neighbor's wife looks really good or your neighbor has something that you really want there's not a whole there's not a whole lot that is going to be holding back the animalistic impulse to just go bash him over the head with a rock and and take what you want and what religion provide the value that i see that it provides from a, a civilizational and even kind of from a uh, evolutionary standpoint is it provides this very firm uh, system of morals and ethics. And it provides kind of a visceral, motivational system of ethics. I've, I've enjoyed some of these uh, books by authors like, uh, like Sam Harris or uh, Stefan Molyneux had uh, a really good book on uh, systems of, of secular ethics and trying to create a secular ethics system. And they were, they're interesting, they're great ideas. But as I read these books, I think to myself, these are really good ethical philosophies for like Switzerland. <laughs> like these uh, ethical philosophies are, people in Switzerland are going to be able to read these and understand these and then implement and then have the motivation to actually implement these but for for the rest of of the world we need uh, systems of ethics that are and and we, we need carrots and sticks that motivate us to be good people that are beyond the that are beyond the abstract and then my my, my second reason for being a, uh, I call it a pragmatic Christian, and I'm still developing, I'm still exploring these ideas, and I'm open to, I'm open to people's feedback, uh, I'm open to having my mind changed on things, but religious people, they end up being a whole lot more happier in life. They end up having, a, uh, clinically, 
they have a whole lot lower level of anxiety because they just don't, they, if you're religious, you have this existential question answered about what the hell happens after we die. And also when you're, there's tremendous value in being on a team and being part of, and being part of a tribe. And I, when I went through my phase as an atheist, I, I could tell that there is, not only is there a, a separation from God, not, not only is there a separation from something divine and greater from yourself, but there really is a, a separation from the, the people around you because everyone around you is just another animal that's just another meaningless result of trillions of atoms colliding into each other for billions and billions of years it it's it, there's a there's a separation that's in there and there is a uh, there's a huge biological and psychological cost to that that separation so i urge people that have you know a, a lot of people especially a lot of our listeners here are probably people that were raised with some kind of religious tradition but over time they they uh wondered from it a bit they they just uh moved away from it a bit and there i think it's something that is worth explore, exploring and it's worth also exploring the intellectual case that can be made for having faith, looking into some of the books about uh, apologetics and such. I love it, Jonathan. I I would very much identify as a pragmatic Christian as well. Um, my my Part of my educational background is in philosophy, and my favorite philosopher is the pragmatist William James. In fact, my second son, his middle name is William James, the one who's going to be leaving on a mission to Ivory Coast here soon. And um, people who are familiar with the work of William James will know that William James was a great proponent of faith and the um, willingness to take risk in life based on um, the kinds of worlds that you might aspire to live in. And one, one, of, my, one of my favorite things about Christianity and, and, and particular, particularly the Mormon version of it is that we put forth uh, Jesus – as this role model of the kind of person that we would like to be. And Christians do a terrible job of actually being like Jesus. But by having this role model in front of us, maybe we do a little bit better job as we aspire to be more like this compassionate person than we would if we didn't have this commitment to trying to be more like that. Um, in, in the Mormon tradition in particular, we um, the God that we posit is – is set forth as the kind of person that we should become. So in Mormonism, you're supposed to become like God. And uh, that that is an idea that's taught in other Christian traditions, but not emphasized as much, this idea of theosis, the doctrine that humanity should become like God. And I value that a great deal because I think that as we project God into our future, Godhood into our own future, that shapes the choices we make. That shapes the way that we think and the way that we speak and the way that we act, which in turn shapes the world around us a little bit more. And many of these prophecies that we talk about in the Christian tradition of ultimately living in what we might call a better world, a millennial world, as the, as the prophecy goes, I think those are the kinds of things that are self-fulfilling or could be self-fulfilling insofar as we act on them pragmatically. So I have a little bit of history with Mormonism. 
my best friend for, I think it was about four or five years, was this guy who was a pretty bad Mormon. He was a, <laughs> uh, he was, he was a, a Jack Mormon. And uh, we were friends when I was in my, my early 20s. So we did a, a just egregious amount of partying and chasing girls in nightclubs and that sort of thing. And um, I remember these very odd conversations that we would sometimes have when he was like blasted drunk at 3 a.m. And he would start talking about his religion, which is, of, of course, the, the worst the worst possible thing. I, I hope that he's a bit reformed <laughs> now. But uh, he would talk about how he thought that in some at some point in the future, he was going to be a god of his own earth. And uh, and he, of course, acknowledged that he had a lot of, you know, a lot of a lot of work to do <laughs> before he ever got to that step. But um, when I when I looked up your website, I kind of I made a little bit of that connection where uh, Mormons have a belief in eventually be if I'm understanding this correctly, Mormons have a belief in becoming like God or becoming gods at some point in the future and transhumanists are also trying to become gods, it would seem, at least some of them. And so it there is kind of a there is there is a connection, it seems to me, between those two those two uh those those two outlooks, those two hopes for the far off future. Yeah, there definitely is a connection. I think it's important to point out of of course that there's a diversity of interpretation both among Mormons and transhumanists about what it might be to be godlike. For me, uh, you know, it's not about like an individual person becoming a god of their own world type thing, which some Mormons do believe, as as perhaps your your friend articulated. Uh, my, my interpretation of, of Mormon theology is that God is a community, a unified community of persons, of intelligences, of superintelligences, and that um, we should aspire to cooperation and compassion every bit as much as we should uh, aspire to maybe the creative capacity to um, make new worlds. And, and so as I imagine godhood, I imagine it as being a radically compassionate community of creative intelligences that I and you and all of humanity ultimately um, could participate in. And, and that that provides me with a great deal of inspiration. And likewise, from the transhumanist side, you know, some transhumanists are are more, you know, focused on the, the here and now than on the far future ramific ramifications or possibility space of technology. So they'll be more interested in biohacking and in, you know, kind of the practical, practical things that we can do today, which I love as well. Those are important parts of my life. Um, then some transhumanists will uh, look to the distant future, to brain emulation technologies, to maybe something that we might call quantum archaeology that could perhaps um, give us access to the long dead information about long dead persons. Combining brain emulation with quantum archaeology could give you a sort of resurrection and uh, provide um, a, a structure within which something approaching immortality would be possible. And, and you know, when people start thinking along those lines, as many transhumanists do, then, then you know, the, they aren't far off from 
talking about and thinking about the same kinds of things that I, as a Mormon, might be thinking about. So there is a there is a, a huge opportunity for compatibility between the two. There are many Mormon transhumanists who find strong compatibility between the two, not only com compatibility, but even complementarity, because on the one hand, they'll look at the transhumanist approach as providing kind of a technological engineering, sci more scientifically based, although, of course, very hypothetical in many cases. Um, and then they'll look at the Mormon side as kind of an aesthetic approach to the same ideas and combining the technical and the aesthetic um, is is like combining the practical and the inspirational, right? You you get this confluence of 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 capacity with motivation, and those things work well together to kind of move your life in a certain direction that is a both meaningful and empowered. Sure. Okay. In your your paper here, transfigurism: a future of religion is exemplified by religious transhumanists. You wrote here in the conclusion, indeed, if transhumanism substantially affects the world for the better, it will do so only consequent to our practical trust in its aesthetic and only to the extent that real world possibilities beyond our own power align with that practical trust. Can, can you explain that line a little bit more to me? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, there, there, there are quite a few transhumanists who overlooked the fact that no matter how powerful we might be and no, how, no matter how powerful we might become because of science and technology, we did not establish the laws of physics. We did not evolve ourselves into being. We did not individually, for sure, um, give us the gift of ancient human culture and technology that and all of this that we're now leveraging the laws of physics human culture and technology all of this that we're now leveraging is opportunity is grace that we have received and so it's a mistake to suppose that we have somehow or ever could bootstrap ourselves into a superhuman potential. If ever we achieve that superhuman potential, it will be in large measure because of grace of power beyond ourselves. Whether you want to attribute intelligence or consciousness or will willfulness to that power beyond ourselves, as people who believe in God tend to, tend to do, or if you want it to be more of a um, impersonal force or whatever, or, or even if you want to be reductive and it's just this, per, you know, impersonal machinery, no matter how you want to look at it, we've received an opportunity. We've received grace. And it's within that context that we can now operate. And we can operate in many ways. We can operate in ways that pull each other down, that um, emphasize, uh, violence and aggression and egotistical pursuit of resource allocation, um, resource manipulation, resource uh, greed, or we can approach this in a more cooperative, compassionate way where we're trying to raise each other up, where we're trying to uh, build a better place for all of us. And I would argue strongly that there are natural hurdles 
natural cooperative hurdles built into technological progression. If we don't manage to use nuclear technology in at least in at least some degree of cooperative with some degree of cooperation, then we're going to destroy ourselves with that technology. And if we don't use the emerging biotechnologies with some degree of cooperation, we're going to destroy ourselves with those biotechnologies and so on and so forth for nanotechnologies and who knows what technologies to come after that. And so as each technology becomes a little bit more powerful and a little bit more decentralized and a little bit more accessible to more people more of the time, it's going to become increasingly necessary for each of us individually to become more cooperative and cooperation at its limits becomes indistinguishable from compassion. So I'd suggest that if the transhumanist future ends up being what many of us aspire uh, for it to be, then it will be because we are moved together by this aesthetic towards a more compassionate future, towards a more empowered future that uses that power compassionately, and that uh, we successfully navigate the risks that it presents because of our work together to do so. Sure, sure. So, I, so, so it's it's a it's a seeking to mitigate unbridled hubris in this process of transforming our biology with technology. Certainly. And there are huge risks in, in this. Um, of course, you know, the, we've seen, we've seen terrible wars in the history of humanity. And of course the world today is in many ways, uh, still, you know, filled with, major problems to solve. I, I would argue actually that the world that we live in today is far better in most ways than at any time in human history. But that doesn't mean we don't have serious problems to solve. That doesn't mean we don't have serious risks both now and even more serious risks ahead. But if we can mitigate those risks, and I would argue that one of the most important ways to mitigate those risks is through embracing a deep compassion for each other then I think our future is very bright. Mm -hmm. So l let me make the case for transhumanism now. And like I said, I'm kind of a reluctant transhumanist. I see transhumanism as the, the lesser of several evils. But I was, I was talking with my wife last night, and this was the way that I broke it down for her was we oh we were sitting around the table and we got to talking about uh, gene gene editing she was like do you think one day in the future we could edit you know edit our babies before they're born so that they have the hair color and the eye color that we want them to have and uh, I was explaining, I was saying, yeah, you know, that's kind of the promise of CRISPR. It's probably about five, ten years off. And it's a technology that's just going to get better and better over time. And more and more people are going to adopt it over time. And I read a book that made actually a pretty good case against this. It was called The Phenotypic Revolution. Have you heard of it by chance? I've I have not. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll send this over to you. you. You might want to put it on your reading list. And it was written by a geneticist. 
and he explained how there was a event that occurred billions of years ago where the DNA molecule took over the RNA molecule. The DNA molecule was a mechanism that the RNA molecule developed so that it could encode genes just a little bit better. And then the DNA just kept getting better and better and better. And then the DNA ended up enslaving the RNA and putting the RNA to work for it because the DNA is so much more effective. And as a result, you see the flowering of life on this planet. And this is called an extended phenotype. And if you have an extended phenotype that becomes effective enough and is thriving enough, it will overtake its progenitor, its creator. And philosophers will also point to memes as an example of this. And by memes, I don't mean like a funny video of a cat pretending to be President Trump or something on the internet. I mean, memes are ideas that take on a life of themselves. And you can see how a meme like Christianity, Islam, socialism, capitalism, these ideas that are really powerful, that have a life of their own, they enlist human beings in their mission to expand and consume resources and develop. And so the case that was made in this book pretty well was that once the CRISPR editing gets started, once we begin to go down that pathway as a species, that the technology, the software AI algorithms are going to begin using us. And that in, it might be hundreds of thousands of years, it might be millions of years, it might be maybe only 50,000 years, we're going to end up in a situation kind of like the matrix, where we have a machine, a technological species, which is dominant on this planet, and which human beings have over time had their genes edited just to be servile to that. We're not going to have human beings anymore that are like, that are like, I don't know, Alex Jones type characters that are like really passionate, that are standing up and fighting for what they believe in. We're going to have human beings that have been over time made just totally servile, like the RNA. And obviously that's kind of a negative scenario. But what I explained to my wife was I said, right now in the world, we have about at least 14,000 active nuclear warheads. And many of which are in the hands of these states that sometimes harbor really deep hatred for each other. And we also have hundreds of nuclear reactors around the world. And the uh, nuclear engineers will tell us, they'll say, you know, you don't need to worry about uh, Chernobyl happening again or Fukushima happening again. You know, those were, you know, crazy mistakes. That'll never happen again. But I, I think when we see uh, our, our civilization, as we saw just recently, is not even capable of keeping the Notre Dame from not burning down. And I think that 
unless we have something that really elevates the average intelligence of uh, our civilization and hopefully the entire planet, unless we have a really great intervention that starts just making us a whole lot more long-term thinking, I think this planet is just going to end up being a radioactive ball of dust that is careening through space where there's maybe a very few humans that are just uh, living in, in utter suffering in the, you know, in the empty in the empty buildings that are, you know, that are, that still have isotopes that are in them. And transhumanism, as I see it, is the lesser of these evils. Transhumanism is the, is the option whereby we can increase intelligence uh, of the species in general. And that's going to have all sorts of weird, uh, unpredictable effects. But in the long term, it's going, it, or no, 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 sorry, let me say this again. In the, in the short and medium term, it's going to result in a, a real thriving of the species. And perhaps in 50,000 years, perhaps in a million years, we will be replaced by something else. But, you know, humanity has just been living this brutal, animalistic experience that is just full of suffering for about 150,000 years. And I would say that if we can get about 50,000 years of utopia out of gene editing, out of maybe giving over a little bit of our, of our control of our genes to algorithms, I would say that that would be, that that would be worth whatever comes after that. Yeah. You know, you, you point out a lot of the risks ahead for us, both if we misuse technology and if we underestimate the power of technology. And um, I, don't, I don't want to downplay the seriousness of either of those risks, but I would like to add the possibility that we have an opportunity not merely to use our technology, not merely to um, kind of be a, an external observer of it or to you know, have it in our hand, but we have an opportunity which is actually a continuation of what we've been doing for 150,000 years to continue to more intimately integrate with our technology. And when I say we've been doing that for 150,000 years um, or longer, we, that, I'm, I'm alluding to the fact that when our early ancestor pick up, picked up a stick, that she was already a cyborg. She used that stick to enhance her reach. And as soon as she gathered some leaves and arranged them into a covering for her body, uh, she became even more of a cyborg as that protected her from the elements um, and gave her additional capacity that she didn't have before. And we've been doing the same kind of thing for 150,000 or longer years. Even the very uh, heart of the Christian communion is a celebration of human technology, if you think about it. 
we have the wine and we have the bread. What is the wine and what is the bread? Well, those are both the products of human agriculture and manufacturing, the height of, of technology at the day of Jesus. And, and you know, he, he chose those to symbolize the Christian discipleship, the unification of the body of Christ in the Christian effort. And, and our technologies have continued to advance. Today now, you've mentioned CRISPR. You've mentioned nuclear weapons, and, and of course, we don't just make nuclear weapons out of nuclear technology. We also make um, we also make energy sources out of it, and all of our technologies can go both directions. So as we become increasingly integrated with our technologies, as we keep using LASIK, as we get um, non-invasive brain um, computer interfacing available, as we um, start being able to turn genes on and off with CRISPR because it goes both directions – um, as we gain greater control and more intentional ability to interact with our bodies, I think that um, we have an opportunity to not merely kind of perpetuate um, what makes us most beautifully human, those, those virtues and wonders of what, it, of what we value most about our humanity. I think we have an opportunity to enhance and magnify them. And to become more like the projections of virtue that we have traditionally revered, to become more like those um, beautiful, because they're not all beautiful, projections of gods from antiquity, and to become less like those ugly projections of the gods from antiquity. And so our theologies can serve as a kind of inspirational roadmap away from risks and towards opportunities. And... Um, that the, our imaginations of heaven from the past can guide us aesthetically towards creating more of a heaven here on earth and perhaps beyond earth. And so, you know, there are huge risks, gigantic, terrible, horrible risks, um, both with the active and passive use of technology. But there's also opportunities to become better, more compassionate, more beautiful, more um, – deeper, more real persons um, through the use of technology. And while we might only have the, the weakest imagining of what that might look like now because we're only so intelligent now, I think as we become increasingly intelligent because of our ability to use technology, that we will have opportunities to become compassionate in ways that we can now only barely imagine, that we can interrelate with each other in ways that we can now only barely imagine, that we can remain the um, masters of our technology in ways that we can now only barely imagine. We don't have a choice of just being like co-inhabitants of this planet with our technology. We also have the option of continuing to be responsible for it and empower over it and with it um, by integrating and be with it and becoming the best versions of ourselves in all ways, in holistic ways, not just in superficial ways. So it seems to me that one of the reasons I'm a reluctant transhumanist is it just seems to me that in, in the near future, in the medium term future, maybe in the coming decades, that transhumanism is just going to exacerbate and take 
inequality in society to its extremes because the the very best uh, transhumanist human augmentation type technologies when they come to market they're going to be very pricey so it's going to be the it's going to be the most privileged in society that have that have access to them and there's going to be yeah there's going to be it's it's going to be a divergent uh, event in our species history where you end up having a lot of people that are really good looking, that are in really good health, that can uh, play darts really, really good, that can do algebra, that can program, that are fantastic at problem solving, that can make a ton of money. And then you're going to have this this unenhanced group of group of people, the people like you and me, we're not going to be uh, so special anymore. And it it seems to me like a like a, a setup for just um, something really bad when you're going to have when you're going to have two groups when you're going to have two casts of society that are that have such different capabilities that have such different capacity to thrive. It it just seems like you're going to have a a explosion of that most destructive of human emotions of of jealousy that has you know you look at all you look at all the I, I had an article that I did where I cataloged all of the different revolutions that occurred last century I think there was 262 revolutions that occurred last century I went through Wikipedia and added them all all up and uh, as you can imagine, last century, it was, you know, a lot of revolutions that were some type of socialist Marxist type of revolution. And they almost all of them are just awful bloodbaths. And so you think about just all that suffering, all that human life lost because of largely because of, of uh, jealousy turned into a political ideology. And I... I, I, I'm not seeing how this is going to be avoided in a uh, in a future moving towards transhumanism. Yeah, I, I think you're 100% correct to be deeply concerned about those risks, and those risks are substantial enough that they will they will realize themselves to some extent or another. We will experience those horrible things to some extent or another. However, um, in the long list of, of virtues that you mentioned, technology helping the elites of the future to enhance, you skipped maybe the most important one, and that's compassion. And our technology will also help us enhance that. So um, the question in my mind is what percentage of us how many of us are going to choose to use technology to enhance ourselves in the most important ways and only secondarily in the less important ways versus how many of us are going to choose merely to enhance ourselves in the superficial ways. And based on the numbers of us that choose one way or another, we'll probably realize more or less of the risk of the dystopian scenario that you mentioned. In the, in the Bible, there's an interesting uh, juxtaposition presented by the Apostle Paul in his epistles. 
at one point in his epistles, he talks about a god that would raise itself or a would-be god that would raise itself above all others, declaring itself god. Um, and he calls that god the son of perdition. And then in another epistle, he talks about another god that would raise us together in the glory of God, becoming joint heirs in that glory, if, if so be that we would suffer together, as he puts it. And he associates that with Christ and, and Jesus's invitation to us to join him in the body of Christ. And as I imagine our future and our use of technology, I see, I see the opportunity to use technology in both of those ways. I see the opportunity to use technology to raise myself alone above others, to make them subservient to me, to make them less than me, to have power over them. And I also see the opportunity to use technology to improve my ability to re relate and love and reach out and make the world a better place for more of us more of the time. And I feel deeply that it's my Christian duty to try to do the latter as much as possible. Of course, I'm going to make mistakes and we're all going to make mistakes. But if we make an effort in that direction, I think it will make a real difference. And if we, you know, choose to do that, we can only ever choose to do that within the context of our present sense of morality, our present sense, our present capacity for compassion. So it's all the more important, in my opinion, that we work hard now to advocate to each other the ethical and the compassionate use of technology today, not waiting for that hoped for future when technology can help enhance us in intelligence and compassion. We can't wait for that to happen because we'll only ever choose that future in context of our present abilities. So we need to, we need to persuade each other to be better people now, to be more loving and kind now, to be more serviceable and uplifting of others now. And if we can do that now, I think that uh, decreases the extent to which we'll see the dystopian futures realize themselves. Mm-hmm. So there was, I wanted to quote a guy, his name was Serge Fagot. He was a Russian guy and also a biohacker and a transhumanist. Do you, do you know him by chance? I don't. Okay. So he, he's what I would kind of describe as a militant transhumanist. And he wrote this article, which was, which was quite good. And in it, for example, he wrote, I want to live in a post-human future that is dominated by the values I align with. Knowledge, science, technology, freedom, progress, power, abundance, pure meritocracy, optimism, and where tribalism, religion, tradition, nation states, irrational emotions, conservatism, socialism, and humanism, along with our own biology itself, are all relegated to the museum and crumble to dust. And I, I took some some umbrage with with this sentiment, this uh, just extremely self-centered view of transhumanism. And it's it's something that that turned me off of it. I, I had listened to uh, Nikolai Deneyev with uh, Singularity FM. I think is his podcast for a while. And there's, uh, yeah, there's just this, this particular kind of like, uh, of like objectivist Randian uh, self-centered view of the world 
combined with this just amazingly fantastic and uh, technology that's going to create these social gaps is that's that's a real recipe for 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 disaster so i'm i'm hoping that transhumanism kind of imbues us with with smart with quote unquote smart compassion the way that our technology gives us smartphones and smart watches because i can i can i can easily envision in you know in a couple more years uh technological unemployment is going to get is going to get worse and worse and we'll have some more uh you know maybe it'll be that andrew yang guy that'll come along and he'll you know convince the uh, the electorate of the United States to vote for a universal basic income. And then we're all going to be getting uh, $12,000 a month. And at first it'll be like, or not $12,000 a month. <laughs> it'll need to be $12,000 a month to keep up with inflation. But we'll be getting $12,000 a year free from the government. And the first year or two, that's going to be awesome. The GDP and the stock market is going to go to the moon. But after about another five or 10 years, we're going to have all of these really dysgenic effects that are going to be resulting of it. We're going to have this, uh, this, this, this class of non-privileged people that are just going to grow increasingly unhappy with what they perceive to be just kind of scraps that are thrown to them from the table by the Silicon Valley elites. So I'm, I'm hoping that transhumanism in combination with, with religion and with Christianity, with, which Christianity does a pretty good job of mitigating people's, people's jealousy, jealousy response. I'm hoping that we can get some smart compassion where we're going to be we're going to be helping people in a way that helps them help themselves as opposed to just giving giving crutches to billions and billions of people and i think in combination with a with a uh, perhaps a renewal of the this christianite these these christian values where we try to avoid being jealous i'm thinking that that has a chance of averting that that bloodbath between the haves and the have-nots yeah jonathan huge amen to what you've just said i i think you've you've nailed it there's a there's a big difference between compassion and pity compassion is in my estimation the ultimate virtue pity is a vice and pity leads us to do things that make people dependent on us, subservient to us. It, we might sustain their lives, but we do it in a way that makes them ultimately, you know, servile to the rest of us. And that actually is not a very bright future um, for the have-nots. A bright future for the have-nots is the compassion that creates opportunity for real growth. It's the compassion of in the Christian tradition, the God who comes to us and says, I want you to be like me. Here is the opportunity. Will you take it? Will you do these things that will make you more intelligent and compassionate? And presenting opportunity to do that in a non-jealous way, in a way that ultimately, as the, as the Bible, as the New Testament puts it, makes us joint heirs in the glory of God. That is a God who is not jealous of power that is a God who wants us to share power. And that is the God that, you know, 
Christ represents in the Christian tradition. And and so, yeah, you know, if 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 universal basic income is a way to help people as an interim stopgap, then that's fine. But that can't be our ultimate aim. Our ultimate aim needs to be to empower people to be intelligent and compassionate, to be creative, to 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 contribute to our community now and for as long as possible, for as long as we exist. You know, forever is forever is an interesting superlative, but um, you know, let's say forever. And and if we can pursue that ideal then that is real compassion. If we're just kind of like keeping people alive because we pity them, that's not compassion. That's actually sinning against them. That's that's making life worse for them in the long run with some kind of pretense to making it okay for them in the present. Mm-hmm. Well, what, my, what I would just urge to you is as you're, as you're dealing with transhumanists, hold your ground on your values as much as possible really hold your your ground even if they even if they they call you guys mean names because i yeah i'm just kind of disgusted by a lot of what i see out of out of transhumanists it seems like they're they're really going into this this uh leftist uh this this leftist worldview this kind of authoritarian worldview and i i can i can easily envision in a couple of years you know the transhumanists saying you know hey mormons you need to stop doing your evangelizing because we think that's hate speech and we're gonna you know kick you off of google for doing that or whatever and i would just really urge you guys to to hold your ground because there yeah there's such great promise in using in using technology to make us to make us better humans but we yeah we need something greater than ourselves to mitigate that that human uh that human hubris that makes us just step over other people which is is just going to be so much easier when you have um technology when you have this technology that's making some people extremely intelligent and uh extremely wealthy at the same time i agree jonathan and i and i sincerely appreciate your your encouragement okay so i got uh some questions on social media just a few to run past you and you can uh some of this material might have already covered so you can answer them concisely if you want so there was john on our facebook group and he said what could be the fundamental benefits of transhumanism running its course forward to the individual and to general people i'd say that the fundamental benefit is the recognition that humanity has been evolving and has been increasingly intentional in its evolution through the application of technology to itself first via culture and now through machines and so transhumanism is a way of becoming aware intentionally aware of that evolution and realizing that we can no longer to use the christian metaphor stay in the garden of innocence now that we know that we have this power we have to use it and even choosing not to use it is a form of using it 
So we have to do something. We have to choose either to apply it in one way or another to try to set it aside or not. And if I set it aside, what are the chances that somebody else will use it against me? So the fundamental benefit of transhumanism is, is our recognition of, of the power that we have and the responsibility to use that power to make ourselves actually better rather than worse. Sure. And I would say to John, I think the primary benefit of transhumanism is just survival of the species. I just think that the species right now is on a trajectory towards, towards suicide and that it's transhumanism has a good chance of, of averting that. So I see that as the main benefit. Okay. Question number two is, okay, what could be the same cons to said target group? Note that could not will be. Okay. So he's saying, what are the downsides of transhumanism? And I think we've, we've handled that a little bit. Yeah. You know, in summary, transhumanism is the ethical use of technology to expand human abilities. Well, the ability to do what? The ability to make, to oppress others. Yeah. Technology could enhance our ability to do that. And so the downside is that we will choose based on our present context of ethics or lack thereof to use our technologies to make others' lives worse and to put myself up above them and to use them. And, um, that can create hell, um, for all of us. Okay, cool. Well, let's get into some biohacking stuff for a bit, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So you sent me your products, which I appreciate. You're quite welcome. A bit. Thanks for you taking sent, a look at them. Yeah, you sent them all the way, all the way across the ocean. And I have found, okay, first of all, I tried the Clarity Daily Nootropic. And I, it didn't have that much of a stimulating effect on me doing it in the recommended dosage, but I found that the two in combination are, are really excellent for, they, they, they gave me a bit of stimulation, which is great because I, I, I have a preference with my stimulants. I like to have my caffeine and I do a little bit of nicotine in the mornings. And then in the evenings or a little bit later in the afternoon, I really don't like to use caffeine because it just can have that real high cost on sleep. And so I've been doing, I've been doing two of these. I've been doing two of both of them. And I find that it has an effect that probably lasts about four to five hours of stimulating me, pepping me up a bit. My mood is real nice and even, I wouldn't say that it's something that it's, it's not like a happy, a real, uh, it's not something like, um, oh, like tea time, which just makes me, which just puts me over the moon. Uh, and it's also not quite like rhodiola where it has a real distinct antidepressant effect, but I like the effect on my problem solving abilities. I'm, you know, a website developer and a, a internet entrepreneur connoisseur type guy. So I will be, I'll be working on things and I'll have like 25 different tabs open on my browser. And I will need to be keeping track of, you know, about 10 different pieces of information, things that I'm copying and pasting and an href that I need to put someplace. 
and uh, a URL that I need to remember. And I find that it definitely improves my capacity to keep track of all that, that it helps out quite a bit with the, with the web development tasks. And I also found that it resulted in a, I found that doing the two together resulted in an uptick in my brain training scores. And I really like doing brain training with the dual and back. I especially like doing brain training when I'm on nootropics because nootropic effects can be such a subjective thing. You'll, you'll take one supplement and you'll be like, okay, you know, I feel a little bit better. Um, and then you'll take something else. You'll be like, well, you know, I, I do feel a little bit, little bit quicker today. I'm a little bit wittier. I find that, you know, maybe I take one thing and then I'm, you know, a little bit more relaxed. So I, I urge people to use a brain training, particularly dual and back, because it's, in my view, the one brain training app that's demonstrated to have transfer effects, to actually do you some good outside of just playing the game. I like to use that as kind of a meter of the cognitive uptick that different things give me. And I found that these two together uh, resulted in, in a pretty good dual and back performance. Jonathan, I, I love how introspective you are. And as it turns out, your, your personal experience, at least in this case, does align well with the clinical studies that have been done um, on the nutrients that are in Clarity and Alpha. Clarity in particular, you mentioned that when you took the, um, the base serving, which is the two capsules rather than the four, you didn't notice an immediate effect. That, that serving, based on the clinical studies, is most helpful when you've started taking it, when you've taken it consistently for two to three months. And that's when the memory improvements, the memory enhancements, uh, start to kick in according to the clinical studies. However, those same nutrients have been tested at the higher dosage of two servings, which would be the four capsules that you took. And at, um, in those clinical studies of acute usage of the higher dose, they've demonstrated the kinds of effects that you have experienced. So, you know, as you point out, you know, you're an N of one, you're one person who had one experience. Um, but but in this case, your experience does align well with what has been demonstrated to be the statistical likelihood for people who use these nutrients. And are you using these every day? I use them every day. I use the base dosage of Clarity. I, I don't use the acute dosage. So I, my, my main reason for using Clarity is for long-term memory enhancement, and it also helps with mood and focus in a, in a sustained way. Particularly, I find that it's helpful with kind of cognitive endurance. It helps me work longer hours than I can when I'm not using it. Um, and then the alpha, the, the primary use case for alpha, the place where the clinical studies shine brightest, is for long-term brain health, for, for maintaining healthy brain and nerves uh, for better aging. So it's, a, it's a, primarily for me a long-term investment. But as you've pointed out, those nutrients in alpha also do have short-term benefits and can and people will experience those in various ways uh, very similar to what you've described and what what are some of the more interesting uh, case studies or things that customers have reported to you well I guess I'll, I'll answer that in two ways one from the scientific angle you know the clinical studies have demonstrated up to 30 or 40 percent improvements to memory when uh, when 
the nutrients and clarity have been used regularly for two to three months. It, they, it requires some time for them to build up in your system as it, as it turns out. Um, but like on an individual kind of testimonial level, we've, we've got all kinds of testimonials of people telling, telling us that it's helped them do better on the bar exam to help them become a lawyer. We've got lots of software engineers who use our products who, who tell me that it helps them focus better and longer and do, you know, get more work done than they would otherwise. We've got people who just, who, who report this general sense of, uh, of well-being when they're using them. Um, Many reports of improved attention, improved, improved focus. Um, one of my favorites is people who tell me that they're kinder, um, they're nicer to, to their family members when, when they're using yeah, the that matters. It we matters hugely. In fact, um, that's actually a personal one. My wife has often remarked that um, every once in a while, every few months or so, I, I'll cycle off um, a particular supplement. And my wife will, will remark on occasion when I'm cycling off um, a supplement, she'll say, you're not being as patient as you normally are. You need to get back on your nootropics. So um, there, th that's, that's something that has impacted my, my personal experience in, in a positive way as well. Um, but yeah, lot, lots of, lots of uh, positive feedback from customers. Of course, sometimes we get some negative feedback from people who say, hey, this didn't work for me. Um, and you know, everybody is a little bit different. Sometimes that difference is because some of us are more, um, self-aware than others. You seem to be particularly self-aware, but even then you, you, you recognize that, Hey, even being self-aware isn't sufficient. I should take these tests. And, you know, um, the clinical studies that are done on, on the nutrients in clarity and alpha have been done using tests such as the one that you've taken, um, that help pe people quantify differences over time because humans are notoriously bad at keeping track of their subjective states and comparing them to past subjective states. You know, we, we make up stories and we tell ourselves stories. And sometimes that's a really good thing. I'm not against stories. Stories can be powerful, positive influences, but also they can misshape our understanding of the past and, and sometimes as a consequence we don't judge well what has helped us function better as a human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I really got to say the nootropics and the biohacking stuff, they do help with uh, with married life. I got married uh, last year, so I'm still kind of a newly married kind Congrats. of guy. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really love being married. I had this life before as like a pickup artist, nomadic seducer guy. <laughs> and I, I wish someone had told me that being married is actually really awesome. It's, it's, you, you get to have so much more, so much better sex than, than you have that as, is true, uh, as a single guy out there, out there on the hunt. And, but I do, there's, I, I, I don't want to say that it's like a that it's more stressful to be married, but it's kind of like diff, there's different sorts of stresses, and uh, I would I would I would have problems handling it if I didn't have if I didn't have the nootropics if I didn't have some some great biohacking tools in my in my cabinet uh, I I would not enjoy being married so much so i'd really yeah i would really urge it to people that are like if yeah if you if you do get married like that first year it, it that first year is pretty great but it can also be 
a lot it can also be a lot of stress and you want to have some things that are going to tune your immune system not your immune system um, I'm doing that also, but you want to have some things that are making your nervous system more permeable that are allowing you to, you know, to just think a little bit more before you react and say something rash. Yeah, I totally agree. I've, I've now been married almost 23 years and I've gone through the ups and downs of, of, of relationships through those 23 years, of course, there, there are real, real periods of time of stress in every marriage. You know, you're going to argue sometimes you're going to be impatient sometimes. Um, and if you care about sustaining that marriage, then, you know, why not use the tools available to help you do that? And one of those tools in my experience is most certainly nootropics. There are other great tools, of course, as well. Um, Meditation is a great tool. Gratitude is a great tool. Both meditation and gratitude have great clinical studies to support their efficacy, their nootropic efficacy. Um, therapy can be a great tool. Mar marriage counseling can be a great tool. There's lots of things that can help you have a better marriage. Great, great. Well, I was going to mention finally here that you have a conference that perhaps people will want to check out if they're <clears throat> particularly interested in the Christian transhumanist stuff. And that is October 19th in Nashville, right? That's right. Yeah, exciting time for the Christian Transhumanist Association. It's our second annual conference. Our first was last year. And as you pointed out, that'll be in Nashville, Tennessee. So if you're in that neighborhood or have the means to do a little bit of travel and interest, it's a, it's a really a wonderful opportunity for people to get together and talk about the confluence of Christianity and transhumanism. And I guarantee that you will encounter ideas that you've not encountered before. I do every time. And I've been in the religious transhumanist scene for, oh man, what's it been? 15 or longer years now. So uh, it must have been a very small scene 15 it years ago. It was very small. There were. There were um, at the time, so when, when we founded the Mormon Transhumanist Association, there were 14 of us that founded that. And at the time, the other existing religious transhumanist groups who were mostly non-traditional religious groups, so people who had started um, kind of a – they they innovated a new kind of religion around transhumanist ideas. Most of those groups were pretty small. We're talking you know, probably between – 10 and maybe up to 100 people, but I, that's probably pushing it. And within just a few years, the Mormon Transhumanist Association was much larger than all the others and has continued to be the largest since then. I, I suggest that you guys do Christian, Mormon, transhumanist, or, or Christian transhumanist speed dating there. You know what? That That actually would be a great idea. There are probably a lot of people who are looking for a good relationship with somebody whose ideas resonate with them, and yet those kinds of persons could be hard to find if you're a Christian transhumanist. So it might be a good, great place to, to uh, find a, a very compatible soulmate. Yeah, you, you might have to make it free for, for women to attract them. <laughs> well, so you know what? It's interesting you, you mentioned that. Early on, um, because of the demographics of transhumanists in particular – 
there weren't a lot of women in our religious transhumanist movements, but that has picked up considerably in recent years. Uh, for example, right now, um, nearly half of the board of directors of the Mormon Transhumanist Association uh, consists of women. Our CEO is a woman, and um, the number of women among our members has increased uh, considerably as a percentage, and and that's a great thing. Part part of that was because of intentional effort. We recognized, hey, we've got this weird demographic problem where most transhumanists are are males, and um, a lot of Mormons who are interested in these kind of topics are males. So we let, we better do more work to reach out to women, and we've done some of that work, and it's paid off. Great. Well, yeah, people should check it out. They might meet their uh, their their dream girl, their own seven of nine. There. There you go. <laughs> Which, by the way, I don't know if people know this, but Battlestar Galactica is heavily based on Mormon cosmology. Oh, okay. So if you like, if you like the, it's not not uh, quite Star Trek, but it's if you like the, um, if you imagine having a um, a boyfriend or girlfriend who's aware of. Uh, of kind of a sci-fi theology and who kind of likes that kind of stuff, then you might uh, look for a Mormon boyfriend or girlfriend. <laughs> okay, great. Well, hopefully, hopefully people will do that and then uh, leave us a comment, send us a tweet, let us know how things worked out. There you go. Okay. Well, Hey brother, it's been great chatting with you. I am Jonathan with Limitless Mindset and I look forward to a conversation with you and everyone else about all these really stimulating things in this, uh, what might be a really exciting, great world ahead of us. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Legal notices. If you or someone you know developed or created a concept, piece of content, or idea shared on this show, please email us at info at limitlessmindset.com dot com so we can mention them in the show notes or provide a backlink we want to give credit where credit is due as a listener to the limitless mindset podcast we hope you have and practice common sense however since some of the content covered in this show deals with subjects of a health legal or business nature this show is for entertainment purposes if you need recommendations of doctors, nutritionists, or attorneys to consult before making decisions that may have health or legal repercussions, please email us at info at limitlessmindset.com.